Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Future Hospitality Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Wells, joined today by co-host Dustin Myers. We are partners at Longitude, a hospitality branding and design group. At Future Hospitality, our goal is to interview the brightest minds in the industry, gathering insights, ideas, and inspiration to share with you. If you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to leave us a review. Thank you for your support. In today's episode, we connect with Jeremy Selman, former president and co-founder of Seidel Group, and a veteran advisor and entrepreneur who's led in the development of several iconic lifestyle, hotel, and real estate brands. During our interview, Jeremy reflects on the last 20 years of his career, shares about the importance of team building, and talks about the importance of friction in the creative process, and how ultimately it can lead to better outcomes. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, uh, thanks, Dustin and Jeremy Wells for having me. Yeah. So we've had the pleasure of getting to know you a little bit and um, just knowing a lot of the work that you've done. And as a lot of our listeners will recognize as well, just some really incredible projects and um, just building things that impact a lot of people. And so for us to get to dive in today with you is is a great honor. And we're excited to uh, just get into the interview. So um, maybe first things first, just start by giving us a little bit about your background in the industry and kind of how you've gotten to where you are today. For sure. So I've been in the lifestyle hotel business, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to cover the the lifestyle designation as the part of the hospitality that uh, I am focused on, maybe many of the listeners are focused on. But I uh, I started in the lifestyle hospitality business about 20 years ago now, um, working for Andre Balazs, who I'm sure most people know, but uh, for background, responsible for the Chateau Marmont and the Mercer Hotel, as well as, well as the Standard brand. So I started with him about 20 years ago. At the time, he had a partner uh, named Andrew Zobler, who was responsible for business development and legal and and uh, all sorts of um, all sorts of the more kind of business end of the business. Um, and I was working directly for Andrew. And uh, after doing that for a few years, uh, he and I decided to break off and start what would become the Sedell Group. And as part of Sedell Group. We developed brands on our own account. Um, we started off working very closely with the ACE team, um, having owned and developed the uh, ACEs in Palm Springs and in New York. Um, and then ultimately, the Nomad was the first brand that we really created holistically on our own. We went on to create or participate in about six different brands. Um, so on our own account, we had the Nomad, Freehand, Line, and Suaro. Um, and then in partnership, we had Park MGM and, and the NED, which we were instrumental in creating through um, some larger strategic partnerships. That's really cool. There, uh, in that 20 years, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot to cover. And I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stories. Maybe we'll dive into some of those today. And, um, you know, would love to to hear more about any of those projects, but, you know, kind of as you, you know, look back over the last 20 years and just, you know, all that you've been a part of and all that you've been able to accomplish in that time frame, um, you know, what are, what would you say, you know, is one of the most formative, you know, projects you've been able to, to be a part of and work on um, in that time span? Um, 
I've been really lucky to have uh, participated and in many cases lead um, some really phenomenal projects. So uh, I think that the two that stand out to me in particular uh, for different reasons um, are the freehand Miami in particular um, and the uh, Park MGM in Las Vegas. Um, and they are vastly different projects, um, but interesting in their own right. So freehand, as many people may know, was uh, our uh, vision of a lifestyle elevated hostel uh, experience. Um, and, uh, you know, historically, the U.S. had made up something like 30, or at the time, this was back in 2012, 13, um, the U.S. had made up about 35% of the global hotel market, but only 2 to 3% of the global hospital market. And we had seen this rapid growth in the acceptance and then proliferation of uh, lifestyle hotels. Um, and especially at the kind of the more value end of the spectrum, what, what, what happened in our experience was that, you know, brands like the Standard and the Ace, two brands that I was particularly close to, would uh, get uh, some level of recognition, um, uh, a very high level of success. And with that would come opportunities to, to build new and to build better. And ultimately, it would marginalize the sort of core consumer for those products, which were, you know, young, creative people. Um, and so while, you know, the first of these tended to be kind of very interesting and innovative, with success came the need to appeal to a higher paying customer uh, at the expense of, 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 the, of the sort of younger creative customer that, and that made it interesting in the first place. So, um, you know, freehand was both a opportunity to uh, to explore the idea of, of hostel as a kind of a growth institutional, uh, hotel product or hospitality product. But also, you know, from, uh, from our standpoint, creatively, it was an, it was a, it was an opportunity to create a product that, that definitionally always would be accessible to, you know, a younger creative audience. And that's what really fascinated me with, with the idea was l less about less about hostile and more about, you know, how do we maintain this balance of guests um, to continue to have really interesting hospitality experiences as you grew the brand. Um, and so Freehand was the first brand that I participated in um, and that Sedell created with the, with the idea that we would, we would scale it beyond the first one. That's really cool. Yeah, so Park MGM was was almost the exact opposite. It came um, much later in the trajectory. Park MGM was originally the Monte Carlo Hotel, which was a three thousand room hotel. Uh, it was built um, right around uh, two thousand, um, a little bit before then, and had become over time the some of the best underutilized real estate in in Las Vegas. Um, we had forged a relationship with MGM uh, because, you know, they they were always looking for interesting brands to partner with and bring into Las Vegas 
uh, mostly on the culinary side and in the entertainment side. But as they look to you know, create a neighborhood, which is somewhat new to Las Vegas, they, they wanted to bring in um, a partner that, that really understood how to contextualize hospitality experiences. Um, and so uh, we were brought in to do that. Originally, it started with the idea of putting a nomad uh, on the top of the building, which ultimately we did. But as we worked together, we thought there was a kind of a broader opportunity to holistically rebrand. And so while um, on many other projects, we kind of did everything, um, on Park MGM, we were really brought in to uh, think about the, the guest experience um, from a you know, culinary design and marketing standpoint um, and less about the sort of development of, you know, of the physical property. Yeah. So you've, like you mentioned, those are pretty two stark differences between, you know, the freehand and, and MGM and like MGM being like a 2000 room, I think. 3000. 3000. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, freehand being much different. So you've kind of seen all different spectrums of. Yeah, I have. I should also say, you know, I think the hotel that uh, I just opened in Los Angeles is another really interesting sort of case study in hospitality because the property, which actually had originally developed as the Nomad, we acquired in the weave there is, are my partners at HN Capital, in particular Vipin and Ambiar, and I'll sure I'll touch on Vipin a little bit more in the future in the future in, of our conversation here. Um, we had to come back in and take a nearly kind of complete, really well executed hotel and think about how to reposition it um, in a in a way that felt incredibly different, but uh, was very efficient on on capital spend. Um, so it was a it was kind of a fascinating challenge um, and one that was very new to to me. Yeah, I'm curious, kind of going back to the freehand Miami project and what you created it to be and then um, kind of some of the challenges that you saw with the the ideal customer profile that you'd created like what were some of the specific evolutions that um, kind of helped I guess balance out and stabilize kind of what you wanted it to be and then what what is practically possible and then and kind of where it evolved so I, you know, I think I think looking at the free freehand brand more holistically, and ultimately before before we sold the the brand, we had four of them, is probably a better way of addressing this question. Miami was very specifically chosen as a sort of petri dish for the concept. It was in a market that we knew would have appeal to hostile travelers, which was particularly important for the first one. And it was at a, a price point um, and had a and had had existing programming that we thought was uh, kind of easily adaptable to to the concept and and so it was it was it really involved a lot of experimentation. Um, I used the word elevated in in term in reference to the hostile experience and uh, and I think defining what elevated meant was was our biggest challenge. Um, we had some really great uh, examples from Ian Schrager and Andre Balazs and others about what a value product could be and the balance between 
uh, investment in rooms versus public spaces. Um, but in doing, you know, a rent by the bed versus rent by the, the room, it really kind of challenged the idea of, you know, what should the room experience feel like? What should the sleep experience feel like? It was much more obvious to us what the public space experience was going to be. Um, and a lot of the things that, uh, that we aspired to uh, in the more traditional hotel model in terms of having public spaces where, uh, where locals and travelers could, uh, could, could coexist and both uh, experience something rich and wonderful. We knew we would bring those types of that type of appeal over. Um, and really kind of break the security wall, which was so typical to hostels, um, at the front door. We knew that that sort of quote unquote security wall would, would happen at the rooms, not in the public space. But, but the, the question of, of what should the room experience be was a really, uh, critical one and one that continued to challenge us with each, uh, with, with each project. So, um, for example, in, in Miami, where you know service can be a little bit more challenging, the mere idea of having a bunk bed um, at that price point was was a challenge, especially when you kind of look at the demographics that would uh, that would tend to gravitate towards a lower a lower price point um, a lower price point room. We put restrictions on who could stay in the rooms in terms of where they lived. So if they lived in Miami, they couldn't stay with us. Um, and, and so, you know, that was a very kind of artificial way of cultivating a, an audience. Um, in New York, we were presented with a very different challenge, which was, you know, we weren't in New York, you're not permitted to rent by the bed. You could only rent by the room. And so we had to address the question of what is the shared accommodation in an environment where you're, you're limited legally to, you know, the number of occupants that don't know each other um, in, a, in a room and the ability to sell those rooms individually. So, you know, that was a much more obvious way of elevating the experience because we were actually able to offer a high degree of privacy. We made the decision very early on that one of the, one of the non-negotiables was that we would not have uh, shared bathrooms on a floor. So each bathroom would be en suite. And that's something that we applied to to every free hand going forward. Um, and we thought in doing that, we wouldn't put a artificial ceiling on rate, um, which proved to be accurate. Um, in LA, for example, we had a lot of challenges because we were in a, in a heavy business travel environment in downtown, which could be adverse to the, the, the independent hostile traveler. Um, who tended to be younger, not business oriented, traveled for, you know, longer lengths of stay, had more luggage, required, um, a different type of engagement, um, in terms of learning, you know, the, the, the neighborhood. Um, and so our challenge there was not marginalizing the business traveler, the business traveler. And so we really focused there on the check-in experience. So in downtown LA, we offered a different experience for check-in for business travelers that was uh, much shorter. Whereas uh, the hostel traveler, we directed more towards uh, a self check-in and a, and or a kiosk experience. But because we brought design and great culinary 
it, it set a relatively high experiential bar. Um, and so we were able to kind of play around with these sort of levers of service um, in the room and and kind of in the sleep experience. Yeah, that's super fascinating how even within that that concept and that brand, there's so many uh, contextualized, so much contextualizing that needs to take place and, and even evolving um, constantly. Figure yeah. out which aspects need to be present and what's going to drive it forward. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a tough challenge because um, for for a lot of urban hotels, um, they live and die on on business travel, um, and you know, business travel and the business traveler is a little adverse to the lifestyle traveler. Now, there's a lot of crossover. I'm sure when the three of us travel, we're seeking out hotels that kind of have a a, a broader creative appeal. Um, but that's that's rarely the the bread and butter of of business travel. So you know that balance um, was the trickiest thing as we were thinking about you know what markets can this go into and how do we scale it because we want to continue to invest in the assets. And I think you know the reason why um, you see so many uh, hostels in the U.S. and in Europe you know simply kind of skimp on on the the capital spend is because they can't afford to. The way we can afford to is by having a, you know, a business travel, uh, is by, by, by being, um, by being appealing to a business traveler. And, and so that allows us to spend more, but yeah, it becomes a challenge culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a cool kind of compromise and creating something new when you, we have both of those types of travelers in mind and, figuring out what's going to work between everybody to make it a, a success. What would you say um, is like, what's your philosophy when it comes to creating a brand, creating a hospitality experience? I think you need to have pretty good. Uh, you need to have pretty good, uh, a pretty good understanding of, of the consumer and the experience you want the consumer to have. Um, having that lens, is is super important and it happens in the beginning and it's not an issue of being stubborn about it you know we you can get into a process and say well this is my customer this is the experience i want them to have and then you don't really kind of allow the process to create magic um and what we do is all about creating magic um and that magic does require freedom um for the creative team and and some level of exp- of experimentation, um, the risk is too much of that, and you end up with an undisciplined project that never gets finished or has some fundamentals that are missing. So, you know, I, for for me, having a really good uh, kind of baseline, you know, planning outcome, meaning like you have some kind of document um, that kind of establishes the the creative and business imperatives of the project from, you know, demographic profiles to, you know, a PNL um, and an understanding of like, what can you afford to do in terms of programming? Um, you know, those, that's the really most important initial building block. Um, and, you know, for me, I think it's really about having a team that, uh, that understands the importance of, of, of brand in the development process. 
Um, and I think that's really where Sidel excelled in particular. Um, and it, you know, it also can be a bit of a pitfall. So you, you have to balance the two things, but you know, we really hired throughout our organization, whether it be, you know, a development person or an operations person, we, we hired for people that had a, a, a strong understanding and appreciation of the importance of, of brand and creative in the process of building something. And I'm, and I, and I, and I'm, Specifically, not using the word creating something, but in terms of building something. Um, if you want a formula, you know, Marriott's been doing this for a very long time and they really understand how to do it. And that's, and I'm not being disparaging in any way whatsoever. Um, it's a very reliable formula. Um, and one that seriously de-risks most projects. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you want to appeal to a lifestyle consumer, um, you're, you're generally not moving in that direction. And then it's really about under, understanding and hiring a team that can infuse the entire development process and pre-opening process with that creative and that culture. Cause if what you're doing is sort of building something and then handing it over to the, to an operator and that operating team knows how to run rooms. And then you're kind of layering on top of that, the sort of creative thing. That's sort of a recipe for marginalizing experience. Um, when you can use every aspect of the development process with, um, with brand and creativity, um, it, it will result in something that's much more powerful. And that was quite honestly a challenge at Perla, not because we didn't have a team that understood it, but because we were just so compressed with time, you know, and, and, and that creative development requires some breathing room. Um, so when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're developing something that has a, a two to three year cycle, you know, we started the creative process very early on, um, and allowed and made allowances in the development process to, to allow for some change to adapt to that discovery. When you're doing it on a very, very short time frame, um, it can be more challenging. And, you know, I had that experience in places like, Palm Springs, when we did the Suaro and Scottsdale, they were, they were, you know, really good execution from a, from a time and a, and a business fundamentals, but they didn't really have, we didn't have the time to let the breathe, the brands kind of breathe and, and, and be born. You know, it's like pregnancy is a nine month process, right? So you, you, you think you're, 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 you're birthing a hotel. You kind of want to allow it to gestate and have, and have a pregnancy. Um, and so, you know, that, that's really the biggest challenge, I think, with some of these sort of quick turnarounds. It's like, you don't have brand gestation before the thing opens. Yeah. Yeah. I think you brought up two great phrases you mentioned is, you know, during that development process, letting the process create magic. I just love kind of the thinking that goes into that. And I know it's hard to like pin down exactly what that means, but it's something that I think is so important is, you know, staying open to you know, things changing throughout that process. And then I think an extremely important thing is, and a lot of people miss this when it comes to brand development, but I think, you know, brand development does include team and culture development and putting a, having a team that just understands the vision and what we're trying to accomplish and getting everyone on the same page is, is so vital. And I, I love that you put that kind of first and foremost, you know, in your developments. And I think that's really smart. Um, you know, one thing I'd like to to cover while we have you on the, the interview here is, 
you, you mentioned this in our um, kind of prior call of this idea of, of relevance in um, the developments that you're involved in and the properties that you're and, and experiences you're creating. Um, you know, how do you define that, what relevance is and, and why that's important? And, you know, how does that drive, um, you know, how, how, how does the concept driven by that and decision, decision making and, and all of that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea of, of relevance, which is something I sort of latched on to was a response to um, my general distaste of the word authentic. It became somewhat meaningless term of art within the hospitality business. And I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful buzzword. And, you know, we all want authenticity. Um, and I sort of challenged myself to define it. And then I really had a hard time defining it. <laughs> Is Chinatown in New York authentic? And if so, when did it become authentic? Because it wasn't authentic when, you know, at the turn of the century when it, when it emerged. So w- when did it become authentic? R- relevant, I think, is a, is a, for me, it's something much more, uh, is much more, um, <laughs> it's something much more relevant. Um, for me, <laughs> relevancy is something much more, uh, attainable and, um, and, and also intuitive. And so, you know, I kind of live my life by the balance of intuition and analysis. Some people are, are, you know, overly one or the other. I try and support my intuition with, with analysis, but I have a pretty good intuition for what is, for what is relevant. Um, I don't have a good intuition for what is authentic. Uh, you know, is, you know, again, is a mufalata in New York authentic? Um, cause it could be really delicious and it's super relevant. But it's probably not authentic. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's sort of how the idea of, of relevancy as, as the aspiration for life's hotels, um, emerged for me. And, you know, I, I, I need, I need some kind of contest and friction, um, in, in the creative process personally. Uh, often, t- and I think that's why, uh, I've, I've always gravitated towards historic buildings um, because those buildings are the sort of purest form of context, right? This exists already. So anything that you're going to do that's new is by definition intervention, and the intervention is by definition friction. Um, it's not necessarily bad, it's, but it is it is friction. Um, and so, you know, re- relevancy is, is sort of another way of, of helping me to contextualize a decision. You know, am I going to put a, you know, a, uh, an, an 80s motif into a 1920s building? Um, and how is that going to feel to a guest? Uh, and, you know, m- my instinct is that a guest is going to come in and feel like something is off. Um, whereas if, if we try and introduce, uh, you know, an aesthetic that feels a little bit more organic, into a 1920s building, um, where you expose the structure and, uh, and, and, and you expose the sort of architectural, you know, differences between, uh, between, you know, 1920s and 2020s, um, in a way that, that feels connected. Then I think guests can be drawn to that and understand the relevancy of, you know, why we did what we did. Um, 
And so, and it's always this balance between, you know, uh, trying to make the process opaque, but also letting the guests in on a little bit of the, the thinking and the, and the thoughtfulness. Um, so that's, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm struggling to give you a concise response, but it was really my own personal response to a distaste for the word authentic. <laughs> no, I, I, that definitely resonates. And um, I think it's an important and, and very interesting nuance to kind of unpack. True authenticity is really hard to attain. And so I think people like the idea of it, but it, that term gets misused probably 80% of the time that it's used. Um, whereas relevancy is, is a much better target. Um, so I appreciate you kind of getting into that because that's, that's really fascinating to me. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about, it's very difficult to create a, a great brand experience and to truly hit on all cylinders across the entire project. But it's another thing entirely to be able to scale that and to repeat that. And some of the projects that you've worked on, I think, have done that extremely well. So I would love for you to just uh, maybe share with us some of the lessons that you've learned in being able to scale uh, brands and experiences like that. For sure. So a lot of people like to use an 80-20 rule. And I'm much less beholden to the specific percentages as I am to the idea that, you know, once the brand has been established, whether it's established, you know, on paper before a property opens or it has opened already and you're thinking about sort of taking it on the road and scaling it, it's understanding those things that really make up the brand and those things that make up the brand at that, at that specific location. And so, you know, 80 to 20 feels like a pretty good balance there where, you know, you look to repeat, a, you know, 80% of the building blocks of the brand and you specifically force 20% of them to be very specific to that location. Um, and then, you know, equally important, having uh, a team that really understands that balance and is given the freedom to explore the 20% because the 20% is not always the same. You know, you may, you may say in a certain market, you know, this, whatever it is, this uniform works in both locations because of climate, because of whatever, or a palette, a palette is even a better example. Sometimes the palette is transferable. Sometimes the palette isn't transferable. Um, sometimes you don't want the palette to be transferable. So at Nomad, we made a very specific decision that the Nomad brand palette, not the architectural palette, but the brand palette would evolve in every location. And so the color story for Nomad, though subtle, um, was a very important part of, of the brand growth. Um, and we had a team that was very kind of invested in, in the brand um, that shepherded as we went along. And so, you know, for me, the scalability question comes down to you know, what is sacrosanct and what do you want to change? And, and, and who is championing the brand? Um, if you don't have people that live and breathe it, um, it's likely not to scale successfully from a guest experience standpoint. It may be a successful business venture, 
but from from the guest experience side, um, it, it will feel uh, it will feel off in some way. Um, and the other part of it, and I'm sort of just hearkening back to it, and this is something that we really learned, especially as we got busy and we were developing multiple properties under multiple brands. The the brand team got involved at the same time that the development team got involved. So the brand team, once the deal became real, meaning we knew it was happening, the brand team would get involved. And we had a person on our team that did nothing but brand project management um, for for our developments. And it was her job to uh, interface with the development team and make sure that we were communicating well, but equally important, um, interfacing with the brand teams so that they, you know, have the opportunity to really think about how we were interpolating that brand at that new location. But that integration from a very early part of the process was super important. Um, and that's why when you went to a freehand, it was, it, it was, it was unmistakable as anything but a freehand. When you went to a nomad, it was unmistakable as anything but a nomad. And it was more than just the, the interior design. It was the ethos. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It's, it's obvious. I, I think to anybody listening to like, you know, you are the, the way you approach things is very smart, very methodical in the decision-making you have. And, you know, getting to that point over the last, you know, 20 years of lessons learned and, you know, oftentimes getting to the point where you're at now and, and, you know, just the experience you, and expertise you have and everything can often mean a, a number of failures along the way as well. So, um, you know, what are some of those hard lessons you've learned um, over that time frame and, and scaling brands and just, do you have any kind of specific stories or things that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, look, I think I think the Suaro is a pretty good example of um, underinvesting, and you know I think that's really that's really my sort of big lesson is when when you approach a project, you really need to make sure you have the resources, and the resources, as we've discussed, you know, extensively um, together, uh, go beyond the sort of dollars and cents to build the thing. The resources are really about, you know, do you have the time and investment to shape experience for the guest? Because failure and success is all about the guest. And so, um, you know, you may not always truly understand the guest before the property opens. Um, but if you're not thinking about them every step of the way, you're, you're, you're going to make some mistakes. And that requires time and investment. So it's really about like, how do you set up the project more than anything? And there's plenty of things that you can't control. You can't control the market and, you know, you can't control all the timing, um, but you can control the product. And so, you know, don't, don't go in if you're under-resourced um, from, from those two sort of critical elements. Yeah, that's really cool. So we've talked a lot about some of the projects in your past, but I know you're currently working on some cool stuff as well. So um, love to hear maybe some of that and then just how you see the hospitality industry evolving kind of post COVID and in the next few years. For sure. So, you know, I, I touched upon this before and I don't think we're going to go into too much detail here, but 
you know, partnerships are so important. Very often, the lifestyle hotel comes down to recognizing one person. And I am a person with a tremendous amount of lifestyle hotel experience, probably more than, you know, pretty much anybody uh, in the country at the moment, though I'm not very well known as an individual. And that was, you know, uh, for a long time, largely by by choice. But partnership is a really, really important thing. And so, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough today to have a really great partner uh, on the hotel side um, named Vipinambiar. Um, he has a company that was formed in 2017 called HN Capital Partners. And, you know, we partner on, on, on lots of hotel things together. So Perlo was our, was our first partnership, but we're working on some, some other projects in upstate New York. Uh, we recently acquired the, the mansion in Dallas. Uh, HN also owns the, the Virgin in Dallas and the W in Dallas. We're very long on Texas. HN is actually um, based in, in Dallas. Um, uh, and, and we also have a really wonderful, uh, um, uh, general partner there, uh, in, in the Hunt family, Hunt Enterprises. So the HN is Hunt and Mambiar. Um, and so they're our sponsor on, on the hotel side. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that building block is really kind of fundamental. If, if, if you don't have people that are like-minded, um, or at least respect each other's sort of skill sets and expertise, um, the likelihood of success is, is really low. Um, and the likelihood of efficient success is almost impossible. Um, so that partnership is, is something that is kind of growing very quickly. Um, and uh, I'm excited right now. We're, we continue to be pretty uh, nimble. I don't want to say small. We're, we're actually not small, but, but we're nimble. Um, and so it's allowing us to really do interesting things. So we're currently working on a project, uh, in upstate New York, um, in Columbia County, which is, uh, where there's a lot of growth. Um, but, uh, we're very excited about it. It's a historic, uh, historic warehouse building that we're converting into a hotel, um, with some other great partners. So, um, and just generally looking into kind of high growth markets uh, to do more of this kind of thing. Where I see the, the future of hospitality going post-COVID is a really interesting question. It's actually where I'm probably spending most of my time today. It's sort of thinking about, you know, not what does the next 12 months look like? Because I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, market concern. Um, but but post that, what what does that look like? And you know, I think you guys are working on a project that sort of that I think fits really well into the sort of post COVID world. I think more and more, you know, people are uh, are going to look for experiences. Um, I think lifestyle hotels are going to you know continue to grow as a market segment. Um, but it's really about giving consumers. Um, the ability to uh, giving consumers the power to sort of choose their experience. Um, the front desk is a perfect example of this. One that gets a lot of conversation. Um, when we were looking at this question at Fidel, you know, five or six years ago, um, we always sort of stumbled with, well, we want that human connection. And 
you know, and ultimately the response we had to that question was like, well, not everybody does. And so, you know, how do we create an experience where the guest is empowered to make some of those decisions on their own? Um, and it's a delicate balance, right? We are, we are creating a 360 degree world for, you know, a night or two nights or three nights. Um, and it's a very kind of controlled thing, right? Like the, the hotel is a control, right? Such a highly controlled environment. It controls what you smell and what you touch and what you taste and, you know, how you sleep and all these other elements. At the same time, I think more and more guests want their, their own, uh, decisions to influence their experiences. So, um, I think the, the travel industry and, and, and hospitality in general, is going to be about empowering the guests. And I think technology is going to be a really valuable tool in that. But I think if technology is viewed as a tool to save money, it's going to fail. I think if it's viewed as a tool to empower the guests and to shape experience, it's going to be one that's going to be really well integrated. Yeah, I think the future is bright. And uh, knowing the projects you've been involved with in the past and uh, just kind of looking to the future and and um, what we have to look forward to, I think it's a pretty exciting view. So, well, we are super grateful for this conversation and um, just the insights that you've got to share with us. Uh, we could go on for hours, I'm sure, but uh, we'll have to wrap this one up for today. Uh, but uh, if if people are interested in learning more about what you're working on, how can they find you? For now, best place to find me is on LinkedIn. My name, Jeremy Selman. That's one L S E L M A N. We are, uh, we are updating our, our website. So, uh, best to find me there. And, uh, I'm pretty responsive. Awesome. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Dustin and Jeremy. It was great. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Future Hospitality Podcast. If you enjoyed today's topic and episode, please leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about Longitude, you can visit longitudebranding.com to see our portfolio of design work, read our insights blog, and learn more about our team. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Longitude Branding.